This young man, his name is Moishi Holtzberg, is visiting the grave of his parents, Rabbi Gavriel and Rifki Holtzberg, who were killed in Mumbai just because they were Jewish. On their gravestone it says, Here lies the sacred ones. May God avenge their blood. We hear the news from Israel. Over 1,200 were killed in a massacre on Simchas Torah just about less than three months ago. And we hear of soldiers unfortunately dying, being killed in their battle on the front lines. What is the Torah? What is the Jewish perspective on these casualties? Here is a picture of my great-grandfather, my father's father's father, Rabbi Aaron Lazer Zeitlin from Belarus, who was arrested by the communists for Jewish activism and was sentenced to exile, died there, and his grave is still unknown today. What is the Jewish view on putting one's life in danger to be loyal and devoted to the Torah? Join us as we delve into the Torah's teachings on this topic. Today is Tuesday, it's 12.15, time for lunch and learn. I know it's vacation time, but it is a great time to study Torah. This is a very important topic and unfortunately relevant today with the news coming in from Israel. What does the Torah tell us? What kind of feelings should we have? What is the label that Torah gives these 1,200 plus that were slain, the soldiers that are giving up their lives. Let's uh, delve into the sources with our source sheet. Check in your email inbox or on this post. There is a link to today's lesson. And hopefully after 60 minutes or so, we will emerge with a better understanding of the Torah's view on martyrdom, being a martyr, giving up one's life. When is it necessary? When is it not necessary? And inspiring stories to come along. So here we go, we're going to jump right in. I'll begin with a blessing. Today's lesson is divided into four sections. We'll look at some parts of Jewish history where we have martyrs, we have those being slain for just for being Jewish or for clinging to the Torah. Then we'll look at the halacha, what is Jewish law? Tell us when one must, is obligated to give up their lives, when one is obligated not to give up their lives. We'll look at a idea from Hasidus based on the teachings of Kabbalah into this idea, topic of martyrdom. And finally, we will address the current situation, the casualties, the soldiers, and hopefully we'll get there quite soon. Let's move on. Let's uh, jump right into source number one, which is a quote from the book of Psalms. Source number one, it is for your sake that we are slain all day long and regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This is from chapter 44. King David already, 3,000 years ago, is describing that Jewish history, you know, Jewish history contains a lot of oppression, a lot of, a lot of martyrdom, a lot of um, suffering, and it is for your sake, hello Gary, King David says that we are slain all day long and regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Sheep, kind of defenseless. And it is for what? For your sake, because God chose us, we are uh, his nation, we are following his Torah. My eyelids, this is a quote from... Hundreds of years ago, from a Jewish writer, my eyelids stream with tears for the noble ones of the congregation of minds in Germany who were swifter than eagles and stronger than lions. They gave up their souls for declaring the unity of God. This is from the Kinos. The Kinos is a book with about 60 pages written in Hebrew, which is a compilation of sad kind of commemorations and prayers 
for different tragedies that happened to the Jewish people. This book is read on the 9th of Av, on Tisha B'Av, the day which marks the destruction of the first temple, the second temple, and in general, it is a day to remember and mourn the tragedies that befell the Jewish people throughout history. So we have a book called Kinos, which means Lamentations, and it includes also liturgy from tragedies from later generations. So this one is referring to the annihilation of the Jewish community in Mainz. This is the first crusade. This is in the year 1095, 1096, the late 1090s, where the Pope gave a call to conquer Jerusalem from the Muslims. And along the way, somehow, the Jewish people, especially in Germany, in Mainz, in Speyer, um, were eradicated by this mob of marching peasants, German peasants, who uh, massacred and slayed. They somehow believed that by killing Jewish people, even though they were going in the opposite direction of Jerusalem, they, uh, they would be pardoned for their sins. And that was a great destruction for the Jewish communities. So here we have in the Kinos a documentation of this and describing them as noble, giving up their souls because perhaps, I, don't, I haven't studied it in depth, they were given a option of converting to their religion and giving up Judaism. And yet they gave up their souls for declaring the unity of God, believing in one God, saying the Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. So that's our departure. Hello, Eddie. This is our departure here. And we're going to get later on to discuss the current situation in Israel. But we see that this is an old story over... Uh, about almost a thousand years ago, and unfortunately there are many more examples, but here's one, that they gave up their souls. Jewish people gave up their lives for the unity of God. Source number two, it goes back all the way to the first Jewish man. His name was Avraham. Avraham, Abraham, lived about 3,800 years ago in a place called Or Kastim, known today as Mesopotamia. And before he moved to Israel, that was at age 75, this is when he was much younger, his parents were idol worshippers, his family, his environment, everybody were idol worshippers. They worshipped all kinds of beings and powers, and there was no one united, one God. And Avraham was the first to introduce monotheism, that there is one God who is the energy who is the being that makes everything happen and puts everything into place the fire the water the sun everything is being controlled and created by god now his own father had an idol shop and avraham story into itself smashed all of those idols his father got mad and handed avraham his son to the king nimrod now nimrod said to avraham source number two let us bow down to fire he's trying to have this dialogue with avraham Avram said to him, let us better bow down to water that extinguishes fire. Why is fire so powerful? Water can extinguish fire. Water should be the true God we should worship. And on and on they went. And finally Nimrod said to him, you are saying mere words. I bow down only to fire. That was his God of that day. I will cast you into it and let that God to whom you bow down Come and rescue you from it. So Avram is threatened by Nimrod that he will be cast. He will be thrown into a fiery furnace and bound up so he can't escape. And if this God that you believe in really exists, let him come and save you. And lo and behold, the Midrash tells us that Avram was miraculously saved from this fire. And that is at least one interpretation to the name of the place. Or Kastim. Or could mean light, fire, because Everybody witnessed this great miracle. Of course, there were many bystanders that came to witness and see, is Avraham really true, what he's saying about God? When Avraham was rescued, Nimrod and many others re recognized the true God of Avraham, and Avraham started to teach them. And this is how Avraham kind of got off the ground with his teachings from this story. But Avraham was ready to not bow down to fire, not worship idols, and cling to his 
belief in one God, even at the risk of putting himself or letting himself be thrown into fire. Well, luckily, a miracle happened then, but miracles don't always happen in all generations. Source number three. Some years later, after Avram, his great-great-grandchildren, over a thousand years later, were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, very famous three individuals. They were young lads from Jerusalem who were taken into exile before the destruction of the first temple, together with Daniel, Daniel the prophet, and they served in the court of Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylonia, who was the superpower of the time for the Persians, before the Greeks, and before the Romans. And they're living in Babel. Subsequently, the temple was destroyed and most of the Jewish people were exiled. And at one point, Nebuchadnezzar, seeing himself as a god, erected a huge, towering idol made of gold and instructed, commanded everybody, all of the servants, all of the ministers, all of the citizens to come to Bikas Dura, to the valley of Dura and prostrate themselves, I believe when the music plays, to this idol. And that is forbidden. It's the second commandment. Do not worship idols. We suffer from the sin of the golden calf. This is not what Jewish people are supposed to be doing, or really not anybody is supposed to be doing. But they risk their lives because Nebuchadnezzar are added that if someone will not bow down to the idol, they will be cast once again into a fiery furnace. And Hanan and Mishael and Azariah did not bow. They withstood the test. They were reported to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was very mad. And this story is told in the book of Daniel, in the book of Daniel, in chapter 3. And they responded to Nebuchadnezzar, source 3, Let it be known to you, O king, that we will not worship your God. Neither will we prostrate ourselves to the golden image that you have set up. And eventually, the three men fell into a fire, the fiery furnace bound, just like their great-grandfather Avraham. And they were not sure that God will save them like Avraham. And in fact, they consulted the prophet Yecheskel who told them that, I don't know, I'm not telling you that a miracle will for sure happen, to rely on a miracle. And yet they were ready to be loyal to the Torah, not bow down, even on the expense of their lives. Rebuchanetzer was really mad. He had the oven so heated up, this furnace, that the people who threw the three Jewish men into the fire got killed themselves because they came too close to the heat of the furnace. And once again, a miracle occurred, as it is documented in this book, that suddenly, in addition to three men in the fire, they saw a fourth figure, like an angel, who came to rescue them. This was the angel Gavriel. And once again, when they emerged Nebuchadnezzar and all those present praised the one and only God, the God of the Jewish people. And in fact, they were scolding the rest of the Jewish people who unfortunately did succumb to the challenge, uh, though a very tough one, and said, if you have such a great God, why did you guys, the rest of you, bow down to the idol? But these are, uh, this is just another example of what Jewish life was like and the heroism and the loyalty and devotion of Jewish people. And in fact, this story, years later, after 70 years in exile in Babylon, they came up to, back to Israel under the Persians to build the second temple. But when the Greeks came onto the scene, and the Greeks, at one point, the, the Seleucid Greeks, which was from Syria, the Syrian Greeks, started making problems and oppressing the Jewish people, which led to the story of Hanukkah, and they forced Jewish people to become Hellenized and drop the Jewish ways. Source 4, women caught circumcising their children were executed in gruesome fashion with their infants. Rabbi Elazar, an elderly man, was killed for refusing to eat even kosher meat and pretend it was pig's flesh. Even just as a show. It, it could have been really kosher meat, but yet if it would be displayed and looked upon like pig's flesh, he refused and he was killed. What inspired the Jewish people 
and the Maccabees who eventually band together to fight and drive the Greeks out of Jerusalem, bringing freedom of religion to the Jewish people, the Maccabees inspire their men with the stories of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, who were ready to jump into the fire, not to bow down to idols. Wow, what a self-sacrifice these people committed. It didn't end with the Greeks. <laughs> Here's another story, source number five, of Chana and her seven sons. Some say this happened during the Hanukkah story, during the oppression of the Greeks. Some say it was at a later period. There was a woman, Chana, who had seven boys. And one by one, the king, starting with the oldest, tried to get him to bow to an idol. One by one, they each refused, quoting different verses from the Torah. And one by one, they were executed in front of the eyes of the distraught mother. Finally, when it came to the last one, the king said, at least pretend, let me throw down my ring and you'll just bend down to pick it up. It will look, it will seem that you are bowing to me, to the idol. And the boy refused. As source number five, as they were taking the youngest one out to be killed, his mother said to him, my son, go and say to your father Abraham, to our patriarch Abraham, Abraham, you bound one son to the altar. Famous story of the binding of Isaac. But I bound seven altars. All her seven sons were slain because they would not worship idols. They would not give up their belief in God, even just to pretend. This is their grave in the city of Tzfat in the north of Israel. There is a cave. Here it says in Hebrew, Chana, the Shivas Banan, her seven sons. You can visit that grave. I've been there. Amazing. And the Talmud tells the story and says that a voice emerged from heaven, a baskal, saying, Eim habonim semecha, the mother of these sons is joyful. What nachas, kind of, although, of course, tragic, that her sons gave their lives up and sanctified God's name. And finally, this continued during the Roman period, when, especially after the Bar Kokhva rebellion, the Romans really, led by the Emperor Andrianus, that's his name in the Talmud, and crushed the Jewish spirit and outlawed Jewish religion. We have the story of the great Rabbi Akiva, who taught Torah publicly, even at risk of his life, and he was arrested and tortured and killed. And even for a mitzvah like tefillin. Source number six, there was a man, Elisha. Elisha would don tefillin defiantly, even though the Romans outlawed it. When an official reached him, while he was wearing his tefillin, Elisha removed the tefillin and held them in his hand. The officer asked him, what is that in your hand? Elisha said to him, it is merely a dove's wings. He opened his hand, and indeed it was found to be a dove's wings. That's a story in the Talmud. So those are great miracles, but even... Without the miracle, Elisha kept up the Jewish practices, wearing tefillin and Rabbi Kiva teaching Torah under the Romans, even when their lives were threatened if they would do so. Is that the right thing to do? Should we do the same? God forbid if we're presented with such a challenge. In fact, there is a custom today that when we wrap the tefillin, we should wrap the, some would wrap the straps on either side, on both sides, not just one side, so it should look like the wings of a dove from both sides, to remember this story and the commitment that Elisha had to wearing tefillin, even risking his life. So when are we supposed to risk our lives, and when do we say, well, life is most treasured, life is cherished, Life is valuable, and in Judaism, we value even one life, even a short time of life, ex extending one's life. So how do we balance this? So that we'll talk about soon. This just wraps up our first section, which could be um, perhaps brought out in this uh, little story, sad story, that there was once a city where Jewish people lived, amongst other people, and one day a girl is found, a non-Jewish girl is found, she was killed, and of course, who was to blame? The Jews. And 
there was a threat for the Jewish people to be to be a pogrom and be expelled because uh, it's their fault. They probably who knows what. The Jewish people all gathered in the synagogue and they started to pray and fast and convene. What could they do? Very worried. Finally, a man, a Jewish man, runs into the shul and he says, bangs on the beam on the table, there's a big announcement. He says, Rabboisai, attention, I have good news. What's the good news? The girl that was found killed was Jewish. Oh. Everybody sighed, a sigh of relief. Even though it was their sister, their fellow Jewish girl who was killed, but at least they won't be blamed for the tragedy. That's a sad story, but it brings out how the Jewish story, the Jewish history uh, is filled with such stories of Jewish people giving up their lives For their devotion to the Torah, for being Jewish. Let's delve a little deeper. What is halacha? When is one supposed to do so? When is one not supposed to do so? And eventually, towards then, we'll talk about the situation in Israel today. What does the Torah say about the massacre that was killed for being Jewish and for soldiers dying on the front lines? So we move on to our second section. Source number seven. You shall observe my statutes, which a man shall do and live by them. This is a verse, a pasuk in the Torah, from the book of Leviticus, that the statutes, the mitzvahs, we shall observe and live by them. The mitzvahs are given to us to live by, says the Talmud, and not die by them. We are not to die in the observance of mitzvahs. For example, if somebody is in danger, his life is threatened, and it is Shabbos, one may and is obligated to violate the Shabbos, to travel, make calls, and light fires, and do whatever it takes, even which is generally forbidden on Shabbos, in order to save one's life. And even if there is a remote chance, there is a remote um, concern that this will threaten one's life, one is obligated to violate the Shabbos. Hello, Shia. Hello from Israel. And not just one name, one is obligated to do that, to violate, to transgress in order to save a life. And even if it's a remote chance that a life will be saved, if we know somebody is stuck some, somewhere and his life is threatened, we're allowed to make sure we get there. Like Hatzalah can drive on Shabbos and use their walkie-talkies and do whatever it takes to save a life. As the Talmud says, from the words of the Torah, you shall live by them. We learn live by them and not die by them. They're not meant that we should observe the Shabbos or observe kosher or observe any other mitzvah on account of our lives. The example the Talmud, give, the Talmud gives, and Maimonides brings it, should a Gentile arise and force a Jew to violate one of the Torah's commandments at the pain of death, he should violate the commandment rather than be killed. Now, this Gentile is forcing a Jew to violate for his own pleasure, meaning he, uh, let's say the Jew is a slave. And the boss, the non-Jewish boss, says to him, you must work seven days a week, even though it is forbidden to work on Shabbos. But he says to him, listen, if you're not going to work on Saturday, then I'm going to kill you. Not because he cares about Shabbos. He just wants uh, the guy to work seven days a week. He wants the, the fruit of his, he wants the labor. So he's, the, the, the non-Jew is doing it kind of for his own pleasure. Or he says, you must eat uh, this food, because it's a slave, let's say, and he says, you must eat this food, even though it's not kosher. Not because he wants the Jew to eat non-kosher, he just he doesn't want to pay him for expensive kosher meat. He doesn't care for it, right? So then, the Jew, if his life is threatened, must violate the commandment. He should violate the commandment rather than be killed, because the Torah says, you shall live by it, live by them, and not die by them. Another example would be from the Holocaust. Jewish prisoners in the concentration camps worked on Shabbos 
generally, even the religious ones that were, you know, Shabbos observant, because the Nazis, the SS, were not generally particularly trying to get Jews to violate Shabbos. So they worked Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Everybody worked, and, sa- and Saturday. They wanted to squeeze out as much as they can from each of these prisoners, Saturday included. So the Gentile is doing it for his own pleasure, for his own benefit. So if he says, listen, if you're not going to work, uh, their, their life was definitely threatened. If they wouldn't work on Saturday, then they would work on Saturday. That is one rule. Here's the second rule. Source number eight. You shall not desecrate my holy name, and I shall be sanctified amidst the children of Israel. The entire house of Israel are commanded to sanctify God's great and holy name. There is a mitzvah called Kiddush Hashem, to sanctify, Kiddush, like we make Kiddush on Friday night, to sanctify, to make holy God's name, to glorify God's name, and not to desecrate His name amidst the children of Israel which means amongst other people, amongst other Jewish people, one should make a Kiddush Hashem, which means that when one is devout and one is committed to the ways of the Torah, to the ways of God, then even at uh, personal risk, one glorifies God's name. That God is so important and God is so great that I am ready to sacrifice myself for His cause. The other hand would be Chilul Hashem, desecration of God's name. When does this apply? We just said we got to live by the mitzvahs. And here it says we got to sanctify God's name by clinging and being loyal. So here's how it works. Source number nine. With the exception of the worship of other gods, forbidden sexual relations, and murder. These are called the three cardinal sins that although there are 365 prohibitions in the Torah, however, three of them are considered cardinal. They are bloodshed, um, idol worship, and forbidden sexual activity, relations. So if one is ordered, transgress one of them or be killed. Either you shoot your brother or... I kill you. Or have relations with your sister, with your mother, with this married woman, or be killed. Or bow down to this idol. One should sacrifice his life rather than transgress. The Talmud brings a verse from the Shema prayer. You shall love God with all your soul. With your whole soul you shall love God. What does it mean with your whole soul? Says, <coughs> says the Sifri, the Midrash. Even if he takes your soul, our love for God, our devotion for worshipping one God and not worshipping idols, foreign gods, pagan gods, is even on account of our life. The other two, bloodshed, is logical. Why is your blood redder, or why is his blood redder than your blood? Um, The Talmud says, like, you you can't save yourself by killing somebody else. And the same thing, forbidden relations, is also compared to bloodshed in the Torah. So for those sins, one is obligated to sanctify God's name, whether it's in public or in private, not to transgress, to sacrifice their lives like Hanania, Mishael, and Azariah did, like Avraham did, and like many Jewish people did throughout our history. There are other times that we are also obligated to give up our lives, even for other Sins, not the three cardinal sins. Number 10. If he forces him with the sole intention that he violate a mitzvah in the presence of 10 Jews, he shall sacrifice his life and not transgress. This is even regarding any of the Torah's mitzvahs. Till now we were talking about that the Gentile's intention is just for his own personal pleasure. He wants the work. He wants the cheap food. And he's doing it. He's saying, listen, if you don't do this, uh, you're going to die. You're going to get killed. But if the non-Jew's intention is specifically to mock the Jew and his religion 
and he's intentionally making the Jew do it on Sha- violate the Shabbos or non kosher or any of the other prohibitions just to belittle and shame this Jew, then that is a great desecration of God's name. And we have the mitzvah of sanctifying God's name if it is in public. Public means 10 Jewish people. doesn't have to be actually 10 Jewish people present, but 10 Jewish people will hear of this story. Then one is obligated to give up their lives even for all the mitzvahs, not just the three cardinal sins. And another case would be, source 11, when a wicked king will arise and issue a decree against the Jews to nullify their faith or one of the mitzvahs. One should sacrifice one's life rather than transgress any of the other mitzvahs, even merely amidst Gentiles. Even not to change the color of the strap of a sandal. Woo! So, Here's another one. The first one we said is that if it's in public, number one, and number two, his intention, the non-Jew's intention is specifically for him to violate the Torah. So then, he must give up his life. Here we're saying, if it's a general oppressive government that's ruling the, 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 the Jewish people, or the Jewish community, or the Jewish person at the time, it's called a shasashma, a time of decree, like the times of the Romans, when Elisha was defiantly putting on his tefillin, even though tefillin is not one of the three cardinal sins, and Rekiva was teaching Torah. And uh, Rabbi Lazar didn't want to eat uh, non-kosher meat from a pig. Why? Because the Greeks and the Romans were out and the communists were out to eradicate religion, the Jewish religion. And therefore, one must stand up even for a Jewish custom, like the color of the straps of a sandal, where, the way Rashi explains, if the Jewish custom was to have black shoelaces and the non-Jewish custom was to have red shoelaces and it was an accepted practice by Jewish people to have black shoelaces, so even if the non-Jew comes and it's the time of decree, they're trying to eradicate Jewish practice then even on a minor custom of the color of shoelaces, one must give up their life. Because this is a fight against God. It is a fight against religion. And one must give up their life if the non-Jew presents him with this challenge. So, so far, we have... How do we reconcile the verses? On one hand, we have a mitzvah to live by the mitzvahs and not to die. we got to treasure life. We have to preserve life. On the other hand, we have a mitzvah to sanctify God's name. So the general rule is the three cardinal sins of idol worship, forbidden relations, and bloodshed. Those three, whether in public or in private, one must always give up their life to sanctify God's name. But all other mitzvahs in normal times, and the non-Jew is just intention, is just for his own personal pleasure, then one must violate and transgress and not give up their lives to preserve life. However, we have two exceptions. If the non-Jew's intention is for specifically to mock the Jew to violate his religion, and it's in public, the Jew must give up his life. And if it's a shasashmad, if it's a time of a general decree against eradicating, to eradicate the Jewish religion, then even if it's something minor, <coughs> and even if it's in private, one must give up their lives. Source 12, what about what about if one is not supposed to give up their lives, they're supposed to preserve life, as we see in source 12, Maimonides says, If anyone about whom it is said, transgress and do not sacrifice their life, if they go ahead and they sacrifice his life and does not transgress, he is held accountable for his life. So for example, in ordinary times, a non-Jewish person comes to a Jewish person and says, you must eat this pig <coughs> or I will <coughs> kill you. 
And the, the non-Jew is not trying to get the Jew to violate his religion. He's just for his own pleasure. And we said, in ordinary times, one is obligated to preserve life and transgress. So if one goes ahead and does not eat the pig, he <clears throat> gets killed. Says my money, he's held accountable. His soul is held, held accountable. He did not do the right thing. That is only the opinion of Maimonides. However, many argue, and the Code of Jewish Law argues and says, if he wants to be stringent upon himself and be killed, he may do so if the idolater intends to make him violate his religion. Okay, so he says that he does not have to, meaning let's... If the, let's get this clear, if there are two conditions, that there is a non-Jewish person and his intention is to belittle the Jewish religion, and it's in public, then he is obligated. But if it's not in public, then he is not obligated. Comes along with the code of Jewish law, you are not obligated, but Maimonides would say that you're not allowed to do it in, in private, because there's no real sanctification of God's name unless you're amidst all of Jewish people, and there are ten Jewish people that are going to hear about it. So in private, you would be not allowed. However, the Code of Jewish Law says, no, you don't have to, but you are allowed to. If you want to be stringent, you can. And there are others that say, like the Shach, <coughs> that even <coughs> if the non-Jewish person is doing it for his own pleasure, as I mentioned before, then one may be stringent on themselves. They will not be held accountable in heaven for, trans- for you know, giving up their lives. They, it, it is tzedakah. It is considered a, a righteous act for one to, be, to stand up to the non-Jew and keep to his religion even on expense of his life. Source number 13. A prominent, pious, and God-fearing Jew who sees that his generation regularly flouts a particular precept is allowed to sacrifice his life so that people will learn from his example. This is another exception. Even Maimonides would agree that in ordinary cases, one can give up their lives for any mitzvah, even if there's no non-Jew you know, coming to um, belittle him and shame him, because he wants to inspire the people to be observant of this mitzvah by seeing that he is ready to give up his life. An example is given from Yosef, from Joseph, that his father sent him on a mission to his brothers. He knew his brothers hated him. So how was he allowed to risk his life and go check up on his brothers? And we see what happened. He was almost killed, thrown into a pit, sold as a slave. And the answer is that Joseph detected that his brothers are lacking in the midst of kibbutz av, in honoring their father. The fact, the very mere fact that they hated him as re- because their father loved him showed that they didn't really respect and love their father properly. So he was trying to demonstrate to them that here he is ready to risk his life to fulfill their father's instruction to him to check up on them even though he knew his life is at risk because Yosef was trying to impress upon them the importance of this mitzvah. So similarly, Jewish people throughout history, if they were prominent and were ready to risk their lives and give up their lives, even for a regular mitzvah, even if they technically were not obligated to do so, in order to oppress and inspire the rest of the people to cling to the ways of the Torah. So that was very technical, but just gives us a little bit of insight in this difficult but important topic that Jewish law deals with, which was unfortunately many times part of Jewish history, how a Jew goes about reconciling, on one hand, sanctifying God's name, on one hand, preserving life, and understanding the rules of Jewish law, how to deal with these situations. So I mentioned my great-grandfather, uh, Rabbi Aaron Lazer, who lived in Belarus. Here is a uh, picture of him in a moment. And he was a moyel. He performed circumcisions for baby boys. And was a shoichet. He would slaughter Jewish meat, which under the communist regime in the 1930s was outlawed. And eventually he was arrested in 1938. He was sentenced to uh, exile in Vladivostok, where he perished. And we don't even have his grave till today. He didn't have to. But he risked his life to teach Torah, to keep up Jewish practice. And till today, he is an inspiration to me, to my family, to his many great, great, you know, great grandchildren, great, great grandchildren, and family members.
Let's move on to our next section. It's a little joke, you know, the a rabbi, a chazin, and a president are in the shul, the Yom Kippur, and bandits, bloodthirsty crusades, or who knows, march into the shul, they take them captive, they march them to the forest, and they said, you're going to die right here. The rabbi is crying, tells the bandits, please, it's Yom Kippur. I'm preparing my sermon for months. Let me, let me just say my sermon before you kill me. Okay, granted. And the chazan says, well, my request is, I've been preparing to sing, to be the chazan, to be the cantor for months, preparing for Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year. Let me do that. Okay, we'll, let, we'll grant that to you too. President, what about you? What's your request? He says, Mr. Kill me first. <coughs> Before the cantor and the rabbi. Spare me that sermon. That's just a joke. But unfortunately, this is a joke because Jewish people have sacrificed their life for being Jewish. For being who they are. Let's move on to our third section, which is a teaching of Rabbi Schneer Zalman of Liadi. This is the Alter Rebbe who was born and lived from 1745, passed in 1812 or early 1813. And he is the founder of Chabad. He wrote a book called the Tanya. Very deep and amazing book. And I studied this book extensively. And here is a teaching from chapter 18 and 19 regarding this topic of Jewish mar- martyrdom. If I'm pronouncing that correctly. Here it goes. Here is a Hasidic idea. It's very deep and lofty. But uh, hopefully we'll get the gist of the idea, even though there's a lot to elaborate. These are just some quotes from those chapters. Here is a phenomenon. Source 14. Even the transgressors of Israel in the majority of cases, sacrifice their lives for the sanctity of God's name and suffer harsh torture rather than deny the one God, although they may be ignorant of God's greatness. Not all Jewish people were educated and aware of God's greatness, of the importance of the teachings of the Torah and so on. They're just Jewish. And yeah, we find that even these you know, labeled kind of transgressors or people that didn't lead most of their life um, loyal to the Torah. Yet, when they were presented with an option to be baptized, to uh, kiss the cross, or convert to another religion, and give up their Judaism, to denounce their faith, they stood strong, even being killed as a result. They refused to bend. They were stubborn. Where did this? Where does this come from? I mean, your whole life you're eating non-kosher, you're stealing, you're a bandit, you're uh, you're just a or just an ordinary person, and not studying Torah and following the commandments. And all of a sudden, when one is presented with you know bow down to an idol or accept another religion, the person would be ready in a majority of cases to give up their lives. Why is that? Well, this question is you know 250 years old at that time, and uh, that's his question. Here's a story which uh, just demonstrates and illustrates this. I heard the story as a child, and his name, the name was Rabbi Yitzchak. Rabbi Yitzchak, no. It was a man named Yitzchak. And on his gravestone, it says, the holy thief. Yitzchak, the holy thief. What kind of uh, title is that? The holy thief? If he's a thief, how could he be holy? If he's holy, how could he be a thief? What's the story behind this grave? Yitzchak was a Jewish kid, but he had a troubled childhood, and he ended up joining a group of thieves, and he was very good at it. (laughs) He was great, and he would uh, steal from here, steal from there, but at one point he wanted to go for a big job. So he got together with his non-Jewish friends, and they decided to sneak in, break into the church. Of course, there must be lots of gold and silver there, money, 
and he he was the best one, so he would he was going to climb up to the window, go inside, and his friends, uh, <coughs> so called friends, would stand guard and see you know anything suspicious happens, and they'll be uh, there to alert him. Well, he goes and he climbs inside, and while he's inside, the friends outside see guards coming, and they realize you know they hear something going on, and they're so scared they fled and they leave Yitzchak inside alone. And while he's there gathering the gold and silver, he is caught red-handed and ready, sentenced to be punished, to be killed, burnt at the stake. Well, the priest comes at the last moment and says, Yitzchak, you will be forgiven, you'll be pardoned if only you accept our religion. You convert, you give up your Judaism, you will be forgiven for your sins and you will, your life will be spared. And Yitzchak, even though this is what he was into, this is the kind of life he was leading, he said, no, I was born a Jew, I will die a Jew, and he was killed. He, was on, he went to heaven as a Jew. So where does this come from? I mean, if somebody is living their life according to the teachings of the Torah, so you understand that he's ready to give up their life for, life for it. But someone who is ignorant, somebody who hasn't really been educated and is not living their lives with the teachings of the Torah of God, then why is that? Why is it? Like, where, where does it come from? So here is his explanation. Source number 15. All Jews, even the illiterate, believe in God. So if anyone says they don't believe in God, we say, the Alter Rebbe says, every Jew, if they are Jew, by halacha, if they're considered a Jew, they come from the Jewish people, they believe in God. Since faith is beyond understanding, whatever little knowledge they do possess, they do not delve therein at all. They suffer martyrdom as if it were absolutely impossible to renounce the one God without any reason or hesitation whatever. So it's not like they have a logical explanation why they have to give up their life. It's like there's, there's this stubbornness that as if it's impossible. Where does this come from? Source 16. This love of the divine soul whose desire is to unite with God is called hidden love. Each of us possesses a soul called a neshama, which is like a piece of God inserted into us married to our bodies for the duration of our life on earth, and then the soul goes back to heaven, this soul possesses a desire to unite with God, a love for God, something that you love, you want to be close with. And this love is called hidden in the case of the transgressors of Israel. It's there. They may not be aware of it, but it's there. It's in their DNA. not exercising its influence in them so long as they are preoccupied with mundane pleasures. Nevertheless, when they are confronted with a test in a matter of faith, it is aroused from its sleep and it exerts its influence. The sinner is inspired to choose God as his portion and lot, yielding to him, his soul, to suffer martyrdom in order to sanctify his name. There is a Jewish soul and a shaman in every Jewish person, whether they know it or not. And although... It lies dormant. It lies sleeping for many. But when they are presented with a challenge to their faith, do you believe in God? Are you a Jew? Or would you convert and accept something else? Then it wakes up and they are ready to sanctify God's name and risk their, and give up their lives. It's called in Hebrew, Ava Mesuteret, the hidden love. There is this bond that the soul has with God, does not want to disconnect from God, and it feels that by denouncing their Judaism, they are disconnecting from their source. It's like a child being ripped away from his parent. So it's not, it's not comprehensible, it's not logical, it doesn't make sense. It's just in our DNA and it is impossible to be different. In most cases, of course, there's freedom of choice, but generally there is this a kind of instinct that a Jewish neshama has. It transcends logic. It's supra-rational. And this is precisely the difference between a Jewish martyr and a uh, martyr for another cause. There are many martyrs, are those that give up their lives for different causes. Shahid in Arabic. What's the difference? 
Source 17. We have a teaching. One hour of repentance and good deeds in this world is more beautiful than all the life of the world to come. It's very nice to be in heaven. But what counts most is in this world. One hour here of doing a good deed is more beautiful than the whole afterlife. We're not looking to go to heaven. We're looking to do good things right here. As the verse in Isaiah says, He didn't create it to be desolate. He formed it to be dwelled upon. We're here to dwell in this world. Not to leave this world. We have to do everything to preserve life. And that is why the general rule is that will we'll, um, override in an ordinary case. If somebody is ill, they will eat on Yom Kippur or violate the Shabbos to preserve life because it's about living in this world. But what is unique about a Jewish martyr is that he doesn't want to be a martyr. The Jewish view is that we're not trying to leave this world. We don't want to be a martyr. He would rather stay alive. Is only if he is presented with such a case that he is forced to sanctify God's name, he would, in this situation, this is what he would choose. But he's not looking to be a martyr. Unfortunately, I heard that there are those that, they're looking to be a shahid. They want to die. They just want to die. They want to get to heaven. Is that truly self-sacrifice? That's the difference. Jewish self-sacrifice is different than others giving up their lives. You know, there's lots of stories of people giving up their life for their, for their homeland, for, a, uh, for their faith, for a cause, whatever motive, but some sort of motive, they're going to be rewarded in the afterlife. They're going to be, you know, so they're just some kind of trading their, it's, it's not true self-sacrifice. They're just trading a life in this world for life in the future world, which they believe in, which is very um, spiritual and very um, great in their eyes, but nonetheless, it's about them. They're doing it for a cause. They, they're so obsessed with a certain idea or, I, or belief that they're ready to die for it, for the greater good of man, for it to continue, or they cannot fathom life continuing to live in that situation. But, source 18, the martyr is sacrificing his life, but not his self. He's not sacrificing himself. He's doing it for himself, for reward, or for some other cause. Ultimately, his is a selfish act. Selfish in the most positive and altruistic sense of the word, but selfish nonetheless. It's very great. It's a very different definition of self, but ultimately, it's not just his physical pleasures, and, but it's something spiritual, and for a greater cause, and he's ready to give up his life. But nonetheless, it's still selfish. He's doing it for his personal good or for his understanding of what's good. But when Avraham bound Isaac upon the altar, the first or one of the first uh, great demonstrations of self-sacrifice, it was not in the service of any calling or cause. He did it because God had told him to. It didn't make any sense for Avraham to sacrifice his son Isaac on the altar. He almost did it, right? The last moment God said no. It didn't make any sense. I mean, Avram is the one that's teaching everybody about the value of life. And here he's going and slaughtering his own son. The Torah says you're not allowed to slaughter your son. You're not allowed to bring him up as a sacrifice. And Avraham had one son, Yitzchak, who was going to be his successor and teaching the teachings that Avram risked his life for. And here he's, his son, which God gave him miraculously at age 100, and here he's slaughtering his own son. It didn't make any sense. It went contrary to his own self. Why did he do so? Because God said so. Not because I will get rewarded. Because if this is what God said, even though it's not just, it's illogical. That's real self-sacrifice. Abraham was the pioneer of self-sacrifice and he bequeathed to his descendants the essence of Jewishness. We are all, we are all his descendants. We have his DNA that at the core of one's very being lies not the self, but one's commitment to the Creator. Sometimes it takes a very challenging situation for that to be squeezed out, for that inner love of the Neshama to shine. But ultimately, in the majority of cases, it springs to life. It flows out. The commitment to our Creator, whether it makes sense or it doesn't make sense, this 
is the Jewish martyr. Let's move on to our final section. We'll address the current situation where we have young people giving up their lives, over 150 soldiers who died protecting our Jewish brothers and sisters in Israel. We have over 1,200 that were massacred and many injured for being Jewish. As the Hamas says, they are out to obliterate the Jewish people. What is the Torah? How do we take all this to our current situation? Source number 19. There is a city in Israel called Lud. I believe the international airport in Israel is known as the Lud Ben Gurion Airport. It's right near Lud, a city, very ancient city. Well, the city of Lud also had its story of Jewish martyrdom. The Talmud tells us, those executed, <clears throat> let me preface this by saying that there was a uh, Talmudic sage, his name was Rabbi Yosef, he was the son of Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi, and he once had a out-of-body experience, he was clinically dead. And when he returned and came to, his father inquired from him, what did you witness? What did you experience out there? What did you see in heaven, in the spiritual realms? One of the things that he reported was this. Those executed by the government enjoy such exalted status that no one can stand in their section, their chamber in heaven. They're so amazingly high and exalted. No one can get close to them. Referring, who are these executed by the government? Referring to those like the martyrs of Lud, who died for the sanctification of God's name. Who are, who are these people? The Roman government was ruling the land of Israel in the first century, second century, third century, crushing the Jewish spirit, arresting, torturing, killing. On Yom Kippur, we talk about the ten martyrs, Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Ishmael, Rabbi Hanania. During that period, source number 20, a Roman princess had been found murdered. An event that generated a blood libel against the entire Jewish community. The Jews were at fault and threatened the lives of the entire Jewish community. Papus and Lulianus, although innocent, stepped forward and took responsibility for the act, and in that way deflected responsibility from the Jewish community, averting a massacre. These two Jews took the blame, were executed, and the Jewish community was spared. Says Rabbi Yosef, up in heaven he saw that those two, the martyrs of Lod, who gave their lives up to preserve, to protect their fellow brothers and sisters, they enjoy such exalted status. Ain kol birya. There is no creature that can stand in their presence. A report from heaven. And the Talmud includes this. We can say the same about these brave and courageous soldiers. They do not have to be in Gaza. They do not have to. It is voluntary. I heard this from an Israeli soldier. Nobody has to stay and fight on the front lines. They can go on the back lines or they have enough soldiers that are ready to be the ones fighting, knowing that their comrades, that their friends are being killed. And yet, they are ready like Papus and Lulianos to take the responsibility and the mitzvah, the merit, to do what it takes to eradicate the evil, to protect their brothers and sisters. There is no greater merit than these young, brave men and women who are protecting Jewish lives. May God protect them and guard them and may there be no more casualties. Source 21. Let's talk about those slain on Simchas Torah, over 1,200 massacred brutally 
These individuals were murdered for being Jewish. Whether they were religious or not religious, they are referred to as Kedoshim, martyrs, holy ones. Anybody who is killed for being a Jew is called a Kadosh. As we saw before, the graves of Rabbi Gabi and Rifki Holtzberg, who were the Chabad emissaries in Mumbai in uh, 2008, I believe, when they were killed. It says here on their grave, their only surviving son. Here lies Kedoshe Elya. May God avenge their blood, the holy martyrs. Here we have a teaching from the Rebbe. The Rebbe was referring to those that perished in the Holocaust. And there were those after the Holocaust until today who were of the opinion that, well, the Holocaust, six million Jews were killed. There was a lot of um, decline in religious observance and different sins, different things that were being done by Jewish people. And that brought on the wrath of God and brought on the Holocaust. And the Rebbe was adamantly opposed to such a opinion. Source 21, this is from a talk in 1991. The awesomeness of the cruelty to which the six million martyrs were subjected was unparalleled. Not even Satan himself could find sins which could justify such suffering. There can be no explanation within the Torah for such a holocaust. All we can do is realize that this is what arose in his thought. This is what God thought to happen. Whether we understand it or not, this is just unimaginably tragic, but in no way should we try and explain it. That there was a reason for it. It's just one of those things where we just don't understand. Source 22, all those who perished in the Holocaust are holy martyrs. The fact that they were killed for being Jewish causes their death to be considered Al-Kiddush Hashem for the sanctification of God's name. God will surely avenge their blood. God is the one that's going to avenge their blood. This is like a offense against God, killing His people. The very fact that they died Al-Kiddush Hashem regardless of any other virtues they had, and they were indeed virtuous, elevated them to such a level that no creature can stand in their presence. The Rebbe mentions what the Talmud said earlier about Papus and Lulianos. Their merit is extraordinary. And we can say the same, apply the same to the recent massacre. No matter how they led their lives, at the moment they were killed for being a Jew, they are elevated, their sins are forgiven, they are elevated to a status that no one can stand in their section. They're so great. They died sanctifying God's name. Source 23, Rabbi Yosef Karo, who is the author of the Shulchan Aruch, Court of Jewish Law, lived about 500 years ago. He was from the families who fled Spain during the Spanish Inquisition to be able to keep up Torah teachings. Rabbi Yosef Kara was considered worthy of dying al Kiddush Hashem. It was a, it's a very great merit we just saw. someone. Obviously, we're not looking for it, but someone who was presented with this challenge and gives up their life, there is no greater merit. And even if it's not voluntary, they were killed. And then, so this he was considered worthy of this happening to him. And then subsequently that privilege was taken from him. And he was very upset about it. <laughs> well, of course, we don't look for it, but he, was, he didn't have that merit. And even though, had he merited such a death, he would have not been able to complete the Shulchan Aruch or his other holy, holy works, which were written right later in life. He lived a very long life, I believe, at least till his 90s. He's buried in Tzfat, that was at his grave. He wrote the Code of Jewish Law, which every Jew uses today. He wrote other great works. He wrote a commentary on Maimonides. So even though he did such great things, but uh, apparently, evidently, 
someone who dies sanctifying God's name is way up there and is greater than anything. All the righteous have to undergo purification in the spiritual realms, except those who died at Kiddush Hashem. They go straight to heaven. There's no purifications. There's no purgatory. There's nothing. They go straight to heaven. They're very exalted. We conclude with the final source, which is a quote from the prayer of Arachman, which is said during the Yizkar prayer, the memorial prayer. It's also said almost every Shabbos. The merciful Father who dwells upon high will mercifully judge the pious and upright and pure, the holy congregations who gave up their lives in holy martyrship. Remember them for good, O our God, among all the world's righteous, and avenge the spilled blood of your servant. We refer to all the martyrs killed for being Jewish, for sanctifying God's name as God's servants. May God avenge their blood. Hopefully, this will all inspire us to live and sanctify God's name. Not to have to die sanctifying God's name, but to live our lives according to the teachings of the Torah, fulfilling His mitzvot, and being a shining light, sanctifying God's name and saying, this is how people, the people of God, the nation of God, the followers of the Torah and its commandments, live their lives thereby bringing glory and sanctification to God's name. So that wraps up today's lesson. A little bit heavy, but it is the reality in Israel and in the news. So it's important to understand the Torah's perspective on this topic. And we looked at stories in Jewish history, like Avraham giving up their lives. Jewish people were ready to give up their lives and gave up their lives for being Jewish, for their observance of the Torah, we talked about the halachic technical laws. We have the three cardinal sins to always to give up one's life. We have other sins that one should not give up their lives. They should preserve life. But then we have exceptions. If the non-Jew's intention is to shame and mock the Jewish religion and it's in public, then you must. If it's in private, then you may. If it's a time of decree, then even for the color of a sandal strap, one must give up their lives. We talked about the Yiddish Neshama, the Jewish soul, which is deeply, essentially connected to God and produces a stubbornness to one, for one to give up their lives, not to denounce their Judaism, even if the rest of their lives they weren't so in tune to that, we have it deep inside of us. And the holiness and the sacredness of those protecting the Jewish people today on the front lines, may, on the front lines, may God protect them. Thank you for joining us for today's lesson. Hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. <coughs> and if you're on vacation, enjoy your vacation. Zeigesund. Take care.